0: So good evening, everyone, and welcome to this LSE Ideas lecture on a changing world and China. My name is Arn Westard. I'm the director of LSE Ideas, and it is a very great pleasure for me tonight to welcome an old friend of mine, Ambassador Wu Jianmin. Now, Ambassador Wu has held a number of very significant positions in China. I'll review them in a second, as one should for any public lecture. But it's not really his CV in general that is the starting point here. Uh, what is quite unique about Ambassador's, Ambassador Wu's role is that he is one of China's foremost foreign policy thinkers. He is an intellectual as much as he is a foreign policy practitioner. And that is the real reason why we are so eager to welcome him here to the London School of Economics and to LSE Ideas. He symbolizes in many ways The best possible approach that I can think of to foreign affairs, a man who has done a lot of thinking and a lot of writing about international affairs, and particularly about China's position in international society, but also someone who has been uh, an outstanding ambassador for his country. At the moment, uh, Ambassador Wu is the Executive Vice Chairman of the China Institute for Innovation and Development Strategy, one of the key think tanks in China. He's also a Senior Fellow of the Councillor's Office of the State Council of China, which is a rather influential position, not just in terms of foreign affairs, but across the whole spectrum of Chinese politics. And he's a member of the Foreign Policy Advisory Committee of the uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry, the Wu. From 2003 to 2008, Ambassador Wu served as President of the China Foreign Affairs University, the Xian. Uh, he's been the spokesman of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. He served as China's Ambassador to France from 1998 to 2003, and he has been the Director General of the Information Department and the Spokesman, the public spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry. But even that resume only gives part of the story. One of the main reasons why I, as an historian, (laughs) find speaking with Jiang Min so fascinating is the close relationship he's had now with three generations of China's political leaders, He started as an interpreter for Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, um, in the mid-1960s. And he has worked very closely in an advisory capacity for every Chinese leader since then. So it is a great pleasure for us, um, Ambassador Wu to have you back at LSE. We are much looking forward to what you have to say today. And after the Ambassador has spoken, there will be time for a session of questions and answers. Ambassador, welcome back to the LSE. Thank you. Uh,
1: Thank you, Professor Westard, for your kind introduction I am very pleased to come to this prestigious school to talk about China. China used to be at the periphery of the world stage. Today, China has come to the center stage. That makes some people cheerful, others fearful. I think China is far from being understood by the outside world. We need more understanding from international community. So today, I'd like to, if I may, help you understand a bit better about China. So my my talk consists of the three parts one world two china three china's foreign policy so i start with the first part my perception of the world you no know, today in china i gave a lot of talks around the country especially to the young people in the universities frequently I start my talk by asking them a question. You say the world is undergoing tremendous change. Tell me, what's the most important change in the international relations? So students give me many answers. Some say it's globalization. Others say it's the rise of the BRICS countries. Others say it's IT revolution, etc etc. I say it's not correct. To my understanding, the most important change of the international relations is the theme change of our epoch. Last century, most time of the last century, the theme of that time was war and revolution. The world witnessed two world wars, many revolutions. Now the theme of the time has changed from war and the revolution to the peace and development. This is not rhetoric. This is a very profound change. <laughs> What's the reason behind this change? As far as I can see, there are five reasons which lead the theme change. First reason is the lessons the human race learned from two world wars. After two world wars, people decide to found the United Nations. I think you have read UN UN Charter. The UN Charter starts in that way. We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save the succeeding generations from scourge of war. They mean it. Too much is too much. I mean, roughly, maybe 100 million people died from two world wars. At that time, the world population was not 7.1 billion, at that time around 2 billion. 100 million people died from war, too much is too much. So people believe that that kind of clean should not happen again at the global scale. This is the first reason which led to the theme change. Second reason, nuclear weapon nuclear weapon is so powerful that can destroy our planet many times. Tell me, what's the difference to destroy our planet once and the ten time times? Once is enough. That's why, you know, the time between two world wars was very short. 1914 to 1918, First World War. Twenty-one years later started the Second World War. Today, you see the Second World War was terminated in 1945. More than 69 years passed. We had had many wars, but no world wars. I believe nuclear weapons is a factor because decision makers could not run that risk to destroy our planet. So at some point, the world moved closer to nuclear war. Then people back off. Nuclear weapon is one reason. The third factor, globalization. Globalization makes this world deeply interdependent. You know, 2008, we had this global financial crisis so fast, so destructive. People tend to compare this crisis to the crisis from 1929. If that crisis had happened 40 years ago, in 1968, Chinese engage in the so-called cultural revolution. If that crisis had happened in 1968, how would the Chinese have reacted to this crisis? Chinese would be very happy. Mm. <laughs> oh, this is U.S. imperialism, our number one enemy. U.S. imperialism is in trouble. Good. Good. <laughs> However, 2008, the President Hu Jintao, he said this, we are in the same boat. Let's join hands to overcome the consequences of this crisis. He's right. Because of the globalization, the fourth factor which led to this theme change is the severe challenges facing the world are very are daunting, so daunting. No country, no matter how powerful it is, is able to meet these challenges alone. Look, terrorism, climate change, pandemics like Ebola, uh, natural disasters, drug trafficking, etc., etc., etc. No country no matter how powerful it is, it's able to meet this challenge alone. Human race is bound to unite for their survival. The fifth factor, you know, with globalization moving on, the gap between North and the South is getting wider and wider. According to statistics of the United Nations, maybe 2.8 billion people live on less than $2 a day there are so many poor people around the world the world is getting small certainly development has become a big issue facing the world only development can provide solution so with these five reasons behind the theme change we have we are seeing a new world. The theme of our time is peace and the development. This is a very big change. I think this is a sea change. Because in the time of the war and of the revolution, sometimes wars and the revolution provide solutions. Look, China had a revolution. Why? We, traded, we tried to reform. We failed. Mm. Finally, the only way to, to lead China to be independent. It's a revolution. But today is quite different. With the theme change, we are seeing important consequences. The first a rise of quite a few developing countries, uh, India, Brazil, South Africa, uh, China. Yeah. Quite a few developing countries are rising in the history of the human race. Sometimes you can see the rise of a country, a continent, but never in the history of the human race. People see the half of global population rising. This is new, because the theme change paved the way for the rise of the developing countries, this is good. Then the world, I mean, grew rapidly. Cold War was ended 1991, at December 25. In 1991, the world global GDP amounted to 23 trillion US dollars. Last year, the figure jumped to the 71 trillion US dollars, only in a matter of 22 years. Never in the history of mankind people have seen such a growth. Because with the end of the Cold War, we we have seen the global market. Before that, the world was divided. uh, Divided. There was no actual global market. But with the global market there, That gave a very strong push to the global growth. Third consequence, I believe, with a theme change, that is, the war is no longer that powerful. In the many centuries of the history of the human race, war used to be very powerful. When countries couldn't agree among themselves through diplomatic means to achieve a sort of a modus vivendi. People decide to go to war. War settles everything. But today it's different. Look at Afghanistan. Look, look at Iraq. You know, Americans, they say they made a strategic mistake by starting these two wars. You know, last year, October first, from October first to October fifteen, fifteen, sixteen, a U.S. administration was shut down. <sighs> no more money. <laughs> Tell me, how much these two wars cost to the U.S.? And some American told me that the cost of these two wars amounted to six trillion U.S. dollars a lot of money, then what problems have been resolved by these two wars? I see none. Instead, these two wars create a lot of problems for U.S. in the years to come because these two wars aggravated the, the confrontation. The, between Islamic civilization and uh, Christian civilization. It's very unfortunate. So war is no longer uh, that powerful. I think this is a huge progress of the human, human civilization. Uh, because power politics will not work. That's, that's good. So world has changed. Then I come to China, second part, China. You know, starting from 1978, we adopt a new policy orientation, what we call reform and opening up to the outside world. These two key words, opening up and reform, come together, it is by no means accidental. Why reform? Because uh, planned economy didn't work. After the founding of People's Republic, we copied planned economy from Soviet Union. We thought it was socialism. We thought it was the right way to go. We were wrong. You know, I went to United States for the first time November 1971. I was a young man. <laughs> At that time, to go to the U.S. It was very difficult. There's no direct flight. We had to first to fly from Beijing to Shanghai, then fly Air France because Air France went to Shanghai, not to Beijing. <laughs> Then we fly. We flew Air France. First stop, Rangoon, Myanmar. Second stop, Karachi. <laughs> Third stop, Athens. Fourth stop, Cairo. The fifth stop, Paris. We were exhausted. <laughs> Then we stayed overnight in Paris. Next day, we we flew to to, uh, New York. Also, always by Air France. (laughs) Yeah. Before we went to US, we were told US imperialism was dying. (laughs) I went there. I look around. I not see any. I didn't see any sign of dying.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, in 1971, the rationing system was rampant in China. Mm. You know, for we had this rationing for almost uh, 25 years. Mm. This, life was not easy. You buy anything, you need coupon. You buy rice, you need a coupon. You buy meat, you need a coupon. Bicy- bicycle, you need a coupon. So, a lot of coupons. <laughs> and then, if you travel at that time, if you traveled in China, you, 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 you had money, it was not sufficient. You need food coup- coupon. Mm. Otherwise, you, you, you were not able to buy your meal. The, 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 I mean a restaurant won't uh, sell you the meal very difficult so I went to the food market the supermarket of the United States such an affluence I told myself in my lifetime I never see similar supermarket in China <laughs> I was wrong
0: <laughs>
1: today you go to China you compare Chinese supermarkets and uh, U.K. supermarkets and American supermarkets, there's no much difference. (laughs) Why reform? Because the planned economy didn't work. We failed. We have to change Mm. the course. Why reform? For the second reason, we realized globalization is moving on, Mm. no matter you like it or not. So to catch up, China has to embrace globalization. To embrace globalization, we have to change ourselves. Let's reform means. You know, we change a lot in China, thanks to the globalization. Maybe in this country, globalization is not very popular. Mm. But the Chinese think the globalization is good. Mm. This is why why reform, why opening up to the outside world. Mm. You know, China is a very old country. If you look at the history of the China, it's very interesting. China became a un- unified country 221 BC. Before that, we went through the period of warring kingdoms. In the period of warring kingdoms, diplomacy was very important in China. But after unification, diplomacy is no longer important. You know, when Chinese, China had uh, set up foreign ministry, very late, for more than 2,000 years, we had no foreign ministry. 1912, When the Republic of China was founded, we had the foreign ministry. This is the problem. The rulers of China focus on the domestic agenda. They, because China's huge. They they, they don't look beyond China. (laughs) You know, I used to be a spokesman of the foreign ministry. Chinese, a uh, foreign military spokesman had something special. Since the president does not have his spokesman, neither for, uh, the prime minister. When they travel, the foreign minister is a spokesman who travels with them and speaks for them. So I had that position from January 1991 to September 1994. I had uh, some very close contact with President Jiang Zemin. One day, he asked me this question. to tell me why Chairman Mao didn't advocate opening up to the outside world and reform? Why Mr. Ding Xiaoping advocate reform and opening up? So my answer to him is that I say two leaders had a different experience. Mao, in his lifetime, never went to Western world He only went abroad twice, always in the Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) Deng Xiaoping is quite different. You know, when I went to France, I found out Deng Xiaoping went to France uh, October 1920 at age of 16. He left France January 1926 at age of 21. From 16 to 21, this is a very important period for for anyone. So Deng Xiaoping was aware of the latest achievements of industrial revolution, revolution of the science and technology. He understood better than other people. To catch up, we have to open China to the outside world. This is why These two, I mean, keywords come together. This new policy orientation worked quite well in China. In 1978, China's GDP amounted to 148 billion US dollars. Last year, 9.24 trillion US dollars 62 times. It's marvelous. All coupons (laughs) disappear in China. (laughs) Yeah, you know, with uh, this new policy orientation, Chinese people's capacity for innovation and uh, entrepreneurship has been unleashed. I give you one example Uh, Jack Ma. He's a friend of mine. You know, uh, when I was uh, in France, every year as ambassador, I, I, I went back to China. In 2000, I went to, to, to China, and I visited Hangzhou. The mayor of Hangzhou was very kind to me after dinner, and we had very good conversation. I asked him this question, in Hangzhou, is there anything new? Can you recommend to me to, I mean, the visit? He said, go to Alibaba. (laughs) (laughs) He said, why to Alibaba? Mm. Oh, this young man, very promising, very ambitious. Mm. So I went there. At that time, Alibaba was a very small company, maybe 30, 40 people. Jack Ma met with me. He was very happy because the Chinese ambassador to France went to his company. <laughs> I asked him this question. Tell me, what you are you doing? He said, Ambassador, you know, internet is something new. What we are doing is we like to know how to apply internet to the Chinese market. Oh, I see this young man. 30, 40 young men. They rent a floor there. They have a dormitory in, in the floor. Restaurant in the floor. When they were hungry, they, are, they were hungry, they could go to restaurant. When they were sleepy, they go to dormitory. Day and night. Mm-hmm. In that way. Oh, I was impressed. I told myself, this young man will fly. Mm-hmm. It's true. In the Chinese people, I mean, they, they have wisdom. They have I a mean, very strong capacity for innovation and entrepreneurship. But in the past, in the planned economy, this capacity was suppressed. Mm. But with new policy orientation, big change. So, what you, you see what's going on in China, because this uh, new policy orientation fits into Chinese situation and also fits in the globalization situation. So I'm coming to the third part of my talk. <laughs> China's foreign policy. If you look at the China's foreign policy since the 19, uh, October 1st, 1949, I think in the past past. Uh, More than 60 years, you can divide in two phases. First phase, before 1978. During that period, that phase, China's foreign policy was uh, centered on security Mm. because uh, people's republics was a newborn. Some people didn't like it, so we had to fight for the survival of the young people's republic. That's why you can see at the beginning we had alliance with the Soviet Union. Uh, that alliance didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> because the uh, uh, Soviet Union wanted to to control China. And the M- Mao didn't like it i say this, this you see, I fought my whole life for the independence of China. I don't want a foreign power to control my country. So we had, we had a big quarrel with the Soviet Union. Then, you know, this opening to the United States because we saw the threat. And we and the Soviet Union staging so many troops along China Soviet border, we, we felt the threat. At some point the Soviets try I mean to I mean they talk to the US through their, their spies. They say maybe if U.S. will take action to, to eliminate China's nuclear uh, weaponry. What do you think? This is 1969. U.S. said no. So the threat was there. That threat led to the opening to the United States. I think both sides need it. Both, uh, uh, so there's a grand uh, rapprochement between China and U.S., in 1971, 72. Uh, So this is before 1978. China's foreign policy was centered on security. But after 1978, the year we start opening up and the reform. And China's foreign policy was centered on the development. Mm. But the development, development is key. And we have, and Deng Xiaoping uh, devised um, a new strategy, what he calls the peaceful development strategy. What does it mean? I think it means three no, three yes. Three no's. The first no, no to expansionism. China doesn't want to follow the footsteps of former colonial powers. This, uh, we will not take this path. Second, no is no to hegemony. China will never follow footsteps of the former Soviet Union's back. We don't want it. And the third, no. No to alliance with anybody. China tried once alliance with the Soviet Union, it didn't work. And I believe China stick to this no alliance policy, it's the right policy. Because should China decide enter into alliance with other powers, believe me, a new Cold War would have started. Everybody would be loser. China will not do that. Three yes means the first yes, yes to peace. We stand for the peaceful solution, peaceful solution of international disputes, because China needs peace, world needs peace. We stand at peace. Second yes, yes to development. We need, I mean, the development. We are facing so many tough issues. Only development can provide solution. Third yes, the yes to international cooperation. Because we understand if China does not open its door to the outside world, China's modernization program will not succeed. Only with international cooperation we can succeed. So that's why since 1978, we follow this peaceful development strategy. It works. It works, I think, from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping. China will stick to this peaceful development strategy. I think that serves China's interests and serves international communities' interests. I stop there. I'd be very pleased to take your questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Ambassador Wu. The wonderful talk, as, as usual. Ambassador Wu is a diplomat who can speak to a lot of people, not just other diplomats. He can also speak to young people at universities and he can speak to academics like myself who are studying the kind of work that he and other diplomats have been doing. So we have the easy part. We can stand on the side and analyze what other people are doing. So in the spirit of that, I, I want to get the discussion going. And there is no one better than Ambassador Wu to answer some of these questions. So do prepare questions. And then if you agree, uh, Ambassador Wu, we, we'll take them two, two at a time so that we get a number of people involved here. Okay. Is that all right? All yeah. right. I wanted to start with one question that I know a lot of people are preoccupied with uh, in terms of East Asia. And that is the relationship between China and Japan which seems to have become very difficult. (laughs) Now, all of us who have studied history know that that is not a new situation. The relationship between China and Japan has often been difficult in the past as well, going back to the end of the 19th century. So in that sense, today is not an exception. And of course, we all know the terrible things that the Japanese armies did in China during their occupation of of China in the mid-20th century. But now we have moved a long way away from that, as you said, in, in, both in terms of time and in terms of attitudes. Uh, I was just reading the transcripts of Deng Xiaoping's conversations with Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone mm-hmm. in 1984. Mm-hmm. And in them, Deng says, You know what I'm most proud of, he says, in terms of foreign policy? It is not normalization with the United States, it is not reaching out to the countries in the South. He, he was thinking of Southeast Asia. It is creating a good working relationship between China and Japan because the peace of this region, he said, will depend on that in the future. Now, fast forward to 2014. Now, it looks to me that both sides, not just China but also Japan, have moved away from that good working relationship, that that cooperation that is there. So I wanted to seek your advice. How do you think... Both sides, but the emphasis is on China, since that is where you have most of your expertise. What can be done to resurrect Deng Xiaoping's dream of a good relationship between the two?
1: Uh, very good question. <clears throat> uh, China-Japan relationship are very, uh, very important. You know, Mr. Deng Xiaoping, he visited Japan October 1978, before this crucial plenum, which was held November 1978. Then he visited the US at the end of January to the beginning of February, I mean, after China-US established diplomatic relations. 1979. 1979. Mm. Then he visited Japan again for three days. Mm. This is, uh, I think, uh, he visited only U.S. once. Mm. He was in France, Mm. and uh, he visited Japan twice. Before, then after Japan, he said, I finish my mission (laughs) of the visit, um, abroad visit. Mm. So, for a long time, China-Japan relations grew quite well. We appreciate cooperation. And uh, in 1978, Deng Xiaoping went to Japan and he told the business leaders, please help us, we need your technology. So many Japanese companies went to, to China. Mm. We are quite grateful. The problems that appear, you know, 2012. 2012, the Japanese government decided to purchase these the Diao Islands. Mm. <laughs> Let's call them that for short. No, <laughs> you know, nationalization sounds uh, not very good to the Chinese ears. Japanese government purchased uh, from the private citizen, Mm. nationalized to the Chinese ears. It sounds very bad. The Japanese government took over. Mm. Uh, Before that, President Hu Jintao met with the Japanese prime minister, said that, this issue is highly sensitive. Please don't. Let's talk. I don't know why Japanese Prime Minister decided to go ahead and uh, announce this uh, so-called nationalization of the Diaoyu Islands. It's, it's very bad. Then Since then, the problem is that the Chinese, you know, the Sino-Japanese War, was uh, caused so much damage mm. to China. The Chinese remember that. We tried very hard to repair relations. When Japanese decided to, to do that, mm. uh, some Chinese citizen took to the street, demonstrate, very angry, because this uh, Sino-Japanese war, which started from 1931, to 1945 caused an enormous damage to, to my country. You know, it, almost every family had a casualty. People remember that, very sensitive. So when Japanese um, government decide to to purchase, to nationalize the Diaoji Island, mm. it's very, very sensitive. So we try to to calm down the people then, you know, when the new prime minister of Japan uh, uh, come to the power. And uh, January last year, President Xi Jinping met with uh, uh, Komedos party chief. Mm. He's an uh, ally of the prime minister, uh, Japanese prime minister. So he passed on message to to China. Then we tried to improve relations. And uh, December uh, last year, December 20th Mm. last year, December 20th last year, uh, my ambassador met with the Japanese foreign minister. The talks went quite well. On the Chinese side, we, pre- we prepared a series of measures mm. to improve bilateral relations. However, six days later, Prime Minister Abe went to Yaya's Queen <laughs> mm. This is too bad, too bad. Why? Because 2006, October two, 2006, uh, Abe, Prime Minister Abe, as Prime Minister, he visited China. Mm. Before that, you know, uh, State Council, Dai Bingguo, at that moment, he was the Vice Foreign Minister. He went to Japan. Mm. He had the secret talks with the Japanese side. Mm. Then Abe had the one-on-one talk with my ambassador, then ambassador. Ambassador Wang Yi today today he's the foreign minister he promised us as prime minister he would not go to the shrine but December 26 last year Mm. Abe went to Yasukuni Shrine it's outrageous yeah Uh, when people mention uh, Hitler, people think of the Holocaust. Six million Jews died from the Holocaust. But in the case of China, five times Holocaust. More than 30 million Chinese died from it. Mm. And then he chose to go to the shrine. Mm. In the shrine, there are 14 class A war criminals there. Mm. Suppose one day, if a German chancellor had decided to go somewhere to honor the memory of Adolf Hitler, Mm. what would happen next day? Either he or she should step down. But Abe went to shrine, Yasukuni shrine again and again. This is, this is a problem. Mm. So we had the problem now with the Japan. So we told the Japanese side, so maybe stop going to shrine. That would be too bad for everybody. Mm. And uh, they say, oh, the Japanese side told us maybe Prime Minister Abe will not go to shrine. Mm. <laughs> but he broke his promise once. <laughs> I don't know whether if say, he say something, mm. then he will go to shrine again. <laughs> Sino-Japanese relations will be in big trouble because the shrine, I mean, remains, remember People remember I mean, the, Japan, the Sino Japanese War. So many people died. Every family has mm. casualties. So we, we, we have problem now. The mm. so two sides are talking to each other. Mm. I hope they can find a modus-, modus vivendi to move out from the current crisis. Mm. Mm.
0: Good. Let us try to explore maybe some of those issues a little bit further later on, if you have time, but I want to open up uh, for for questions from the audience. I'm sure we will have a great number of them. I can see a lot of hands already. As I like to do, I want to start at the back. Where are our friends with the microphones? uh, There's one at the back over there. Okay, sorry. Only microphones down here. One of you place yourself up there and the other one be here, so that we can... Right at the back... That's fine. Let's start there.
2: Thank you very much. And um, uh, this is, I'm reading about the, uh, some books about the Chinese diplomacy and once talk about the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. And at that that time, the Chinese, you know, China is still a weak country and uh, to some extent, uh, but but also the May 4th, uh, a student activity uh, influences the final decision of the Chinese diplo- diplomacy uh, considerably so um, uh, but, but at, at that, that time the uh, Chinese diplomat they called the Wellington coup and he, he, he said one sentence about the difference between the diplomacy of a strong country and the weak country, and he said that maybe at that time China is a uh, it, it's it's a, a weak country and it it uses kind of that kind of ideology to think about the diplomacy because uh, the students may think that the Japanese is still the, our our enemy and we should not sign on this kind of things but. I, but at, at that time, China is a totally, uh, uh, not totally. I think uh, to some uh, uh, great extent. I think you need
0: to get to the question.
2: Yeah, the question is that I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, and and uh, back to the to the to the uh, Japanese the, the nationalization of the Diaoyu Island. Do you think the Chinese? You know, China is developing and how, how the Chinese diplomacy consider uh, diplomats consider their public opinion and when they're doing the diplomacy with the other countries. Thank you. Okay, thank you.
0: Right across on the other on the other side there, yes, the lady sitting on the right there. Yes, please.
3: Um, thank you very much for your inspiring talk. Uh, I think Can you to- speak up a little bit? Of course. Of um, so I think uh, to focus on development, mainly economic development, uh, was uh, absolutely the right choice for the uh, uh, for Chinese government at the time. And But now I think uh, we succeeded in bringing up the standard of living for Chinese people. And I wonder if the Chinese government has planned to change their focus from the economic development to uh, issues such, such as regulation on pollution, uh, food security, or even uh, humanitarian concerns, and if so, would these changes be as successful as uh, how we did uh, economic development for the past 40 years? Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Ambassador Wood. do you want to respond uh, briefly uh, yes. to those two? Yes.
1: Uh, the first question about the, the uh, diplomacy, do you know, I, I don't know uh, Wellington Koo personally, but I know his daughter. Mm-hmm. We used to be at the United we Nations right together. Mm-hmm. We talked uh, frequently to, to each other. For, for us, I think Wellington Koo is uh, one of the best <coughs> diplomats at that time. He did quite well. You know, he refused to sign the treaty without uh, formal instructions from, for, from the government. Very courageous. Uh, I wrote a book. The name of the book is uh, Case Studies in Chinese Diplomas. Always, only in Chinese. Hmm. The first case study is this one. Hmm. Without formal instructions from government, he decided to, to refuse to sign. Mm. That's marvelous. Because, as diplomats, you have to understand the, the trend of that time. Winnington Ku, I think, was wise enough. He saw the trend of the history, and that he decided to do it. So this is, uh, I mean, the first case study in my book is uh, this one. And today, yes, we have problems with, with Japan. We have to find ways to move out from current uh, crisis. This is, uh, I mean, not, this will not only serve China's interests, But also to the interest of international communities. But uh, it takes two to tango. The Japanese side has to move too. We said, look, you you promised us something, but you changed. (laughs) We hope you will not do it again. So I think two sides are talking to each other. I hope, I hope we can move out from current stalemate. Uh, second question. I think the the pollution so is a big issue in China. Yes, we have to develop our economy, no doubt about it. But the pollution is very serious. Mm. So every few days, the air in Beijing is heavily polluted. To my understanding, that kind of situation offers, I mean, both opportunities and challenges. As far as the Chinese government is concerned, We have to find ways to address this, uh, this issue. Certainly. How to deal with uh, pollution? This is very much high on the agenda of the Chinese government. You know, air pollution, people in London, you know better than anybody else. You suffered from air pollution for, for many years. So, we'll say we still do. <laughs> so, maybe, I hope with uh, international cooperation, we can find a solution. Yes, economic development uh, is uh, quite important, but uh, to deal with pollution is also very important. Uh, every few, day, a few uh, days you have very severe pollution. People will pay that price in, in terms of health. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and when, uh, you know, I was a uh, spokesman of the People's Political Consultative Conference, mm. The, the discussion is very very interesting. Once I went to, to the group discussion, people mm. say this to me: uh, "Development is fine, mm. but if I have to die at the age of thirty, mm. what to use to have a lot of money? Mm. <laughs> it's true. Mm. You know, people pay a heavy bill mm. for the for the pollution." And the people, I mean, today, Chinese government, both the Chinese government and people realize the problem. We decide to, to deal with this problem seriously with the international cooperation because the United Kingdom, you went through the, that phase. Many other industrialized countries went to this phase. You know how to deal with, with, with it. I think this is... Uh, very good topic for international cooperation.:
0: hmm. Thank you, Masu. Let's take a couple of questions over there. If we start with the lady there at the end, please, yes, in, in the blue and keep your questions very brief, because I want to get as okay. many people as okay, possible. Okay, Thank please. you
3: uh, As you mentioned that, you, China started the space force strategy in '78. So how you explain the uh, border wars with Vietnam in '79? And how do you explain uh, current situation in South China seas with the nidos like which go against all the international law and UN clause? And the second question I would like to ask, you mentioned that the GDP after 78 starts growing up because you really, China realized that the globalization is raising up. But uh, how do you explain that just because after 78, China spent less money in defense because the. It, didn't have to worry about the, the U.S. force in the South after the Vietnam War, U.S. get out of the south, Southeast Asia, so you spend less money in the defense. That's why the GDP go up.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Good. Some good historical questions here uh, as well. The gentleman right behind you. Yeah, please.
2: I thank you, Ambassador Wu. Yes. Just a question for... Um, There are lots of overseas Chinese, of course, in in Indonesia and Vietnam and Thailand and Singapore. Mm. What role do these overseas Chinese have in the future of China, in the eyes of the government of China?
1: Overseas Chinese. Can we take one more? Yes. Is it possible? Go a bit further,
0: with further Drop, the gentleman there in the middle, right by you now. There we go. Yep, that's one.
2: All right, Thank you, Ambassador, for coming to this uh, to LSE today. Um, you mentioned the reform. Economists have argued that Chinese growth is actually decelerating right now. Debt levels are rising. There's a rise in bankruptcies. There's unemployment rising. The house market is being heated. So right now, there is a very pessimistic sentiment. in this, is, this pessimistic sentiment is gaining momentum. Is the reform being implemented too slow? And do we need to wait until the pain of inaction is greater than the pain of action?
0: Great question.
1: Ambassador? Yes. Can you repeat these questions again? me? If I not... can repeat the questions yes. again. Now, yes. uh, let me try.
0: Mm. The first one is about if China decided to become more peaceful uh, towards the end of the 1970s, why did it go to war against Japan in nati- against Vietnam in 1979? And why is it uh, so aggressive in pursuing its aims in the South China Sea um, at the moment? Yep. And then the second question, I have now forgotten. The second question was about, could you repeat it briefly? <laughs> <laughs> What is the future of: I'm sorry, the future of overseas Chinese and their role in the future of China? And then the third question, why is reform not speeding up more quickly in order to deal with the downturn that we can all now see taking place in the Chinese economy?: mm-hmm. all right. uh,
1: Three questions.: You know, we had a war with Vietnam. In 1979, why that war took place against the backdrop of that time? At that during that time, Vietnam was an ally with the Soviet Union. And Vietnam tried to expand. I mean, its sphere of influence over Southeast Asia. And uh, we had problems with Vietnam. Vietnam used to be an ally of China when we fought when they fought US aggression. We we support wholeheartedly Vietnam. But afterwards mm. Vietnam became ally with the Soviet Union. We had many problems with uh, with Vietnam. We have the border issue, etc. So that's why in early 1979, we had, uh, we had uh, I mean, limited regional war with, with Vietnam. And, uh, you know, after uh, I mean, I mean, several weeks, Chinese decided to withdraw, to, to come back. This is, uh, I think, against backdrop of the China's overall uh, Go Because China likes to open up to the outside world, also to show our determination to the Soviet Union and to ally with the Soviet Union, Vietnam. China means business. Mm-hmm. We're not yield on the major issues. This is a question. The second question about the overseas Chinese role. I think the overseas Chinese, there are today many of them are uh, citizens of these, these countries. Overseas Chinese played a very important role in China's modernization program. Because look back at the beginning of the opening up to the outside world and the reform, the first I mean, business, I mean the, the businessmen, they were first, the Chinese businessmen, they were first to go back to China to invest. Mm. We are very grateful to, to them. This is, uh, I think, uh, the Chinese uh, traditions at work. Mm. And the people, as, uh, I mean, descendants of a Chinese nation, people always may m- remember their roots. When the China was in need, they, they go back to invest. That's very important. But in the future, looking down the road, mm. I think the overseas Chinese can keep playing a very important role in China's uh, development cooperation with other countries mm. because they know both sides. Mm. First, the people, overseas Chinese in UK, you know United Kingdom. And you have a better understanding of what's going on in China. So this is very important. So we we need that kind of bridge. Mm. Today, Chinese companies start going abroad. I think maybe 2014 uh, this year is a landmark year Mm. because uh, China's outbound investment will overtake inbound investment. And uh, we don't have m- much knowledge about the outside world. In that process, hmm. I mean, overseas Chinese, they are citizens of the United Kingdom, or France, etc. It doesn't matter. Hmm. They can bridge the gap. The third question is about... Uh,
0: about why is not reform intensifying, economic, financial reform intensifying, mm-hmm. now when it's clear that the Chinese economy
1: is slowing, slowing down? Mm-hmm. If you look at the decision of the third plenum of party central committee, they put forward a huge reform program. We have to implement this program. Mm. I don't believe that uh, we are slowing down in the reform. Listen carefully to what Xi Jinping said. Mm. He said reform should go on. Mm. There's no break. Mm. You know, if China wants to move on, we need reform. Mm you look at the decision of third plenum huge reform program, we won't stop. Maybe we need some time to implement this huge reform program. Yes.
0: Good. Thank you very much. Now we will switch around. We'll start with some questions right up on top there. The gentleman in the blue shirt.
2: Uh, yes, hello. Ambassador Wood, thank you so much for joining us here at the LSC. Uh, you said in your lecture that, you, uh, that China would not be pursuing an expansionist policy, and I was wondering how that uh, accorded with, uh, with the violations of China, China and under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea in the South China Sea and the disputes that it has with, with over half a dozen countries there.
0: Good. I'm glad you repeated that question because it was asked, it was asked earlier on as well. So the question is, uh, why is China pursuing its claims in the South China Sea so aggressively as it is, and as the questioner said, in violation of the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, mm-hmm. to which China is a signatory? Mm-hmm. Um, if we move down a little bit, yes, the lady in grey over there, please, there, there we go, yep.
2: Ambassador Wu, thank you for speaking. I have a question regarding your statement on um, China being unaligned in its foreign policy. Um, with kind of the, the recent um, Global Development Bank in partnership with other BRIC nations, how do you see China's future partnerships uh, with other countries in areas of development and foreign policy? Mm. Um, and... Um, in what kind of, with, with what aim and what goals to be achieved.
0: Mm. So who else will China cooperate with, not necessarily in an alliance, but which countries will China be able to work with the best in terms of its own aims? Do you want to handle those two?
1: Yes. Uh, you know, China believes, if you look at China's map, we have nine dash line in the South China Sea. When these islands and isles were discovered first by Chinese, and uh, we went there first, if you look at the map, I mean, uh, issued maybe 15 years ago, mm. Many, many maps mark these islands belong to China. Today, why South China Sea has become an issue? Because many countries, quite a few countries, they occupy these islands. They start, I mean, exploiting the resources. And we said in 1984, we said let's leave aside the question of the sovereignty. Uh, try to develop, develop together the, the, the development plan together. Let everybody enjoy the result. But our neighbors didn't listen to China. Mm. They start unilaterally exploit these resources. So this is a problem for for, for China. Mm. But sorry, I, I don't want to drop, But I, this is an important issue. And I, I just,
0: since you are such a, an experienced diplomat, I just wonder yes. about this. You know, when it comes to actual sovereignty, obviously it depends on whose maps you're actually looking at, Mm -hmm. whose stories you are listening to, Mm -hmm. about who arrived on these Mm -hmm. islets or Mm shoals. I mean, in some cases, no one could have arrived at them because they're underwater most of the time, so they must have been over them in some way or another and spotted them. Mm -hmm. So there are different stories with regard to this, and this is true now and it will continue to be true, I think, in the future. If you go a little bit further... How do you think that China can get away from this sense that I think is now very profoundly held by a lot of people in Southeast Asia? That China's rise has made it so powerful. I mean, it's, it's a big country. It's a very powerful country. They are small countries. Mm-hmm. At least that is the version that is often held. How can China overcome that perception mm-hmm. that this is China throwing its weight around mm-hmm.
1: within a very sensitive region? Uh, I think China advocates peaceful solution. China never said we want to go to war to resolve these issues. Mm. So we are talking to these countries to find a modus vivendi mm. to resolve this problem. And China is getting stronger and stronger. That's a uh, fact. And we don't want to resolve this problem through by force. Mm because that will not get us nowhere. When we we realize many parts of the South China Sea Island were occupied by our neighbors, this is a problem for for China. You know, in 1984, Mr. Ding Xiaoping said, let's leave aside the differences over sovereignty. Let's try the joint exploitation of these resources. Mm. these I mean, what Deng Xiaoping said, remains the policy of China. I hope through negotiations with our neighbors, we can find a solution. China is not an aggressive country. The next question about uh... The next question was about who can China
0: best cooperate with? Not in terms of alliances, but in terms of bilateral
1: relationships. Yes.
0: On a global scale. I think part of the background to the question here, maybe I'm over-interpreting the question, but a lot of people are wondering about the current relationship between China and Russia, and particularly in light of the current difficulties that exist
1: over the question of Ukraine. But that's only one part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, China doesn't want military alliance with anybody. This is uh, China's uh, very important foreign policy. Uh, Today, China has many friends around the world. We believe on the basis of the equality and the mutual respect, we can cooperate with everybody. That's why the cooperation between China and the outside world is growing rapidly. We don't want military alliance with anybody. Should we do that? I think that not only China would be in trouble, Mm. the whole world would be in trouble.
0: Let's do a couple of questions down here. Could we do the gentleman right at the end of the fourth row over there?
2: Yes. Thank you. Be, be brief, please. I'll try. Thank you. Um, just off the back of that... Um, Why doesn't China bring these disagreements and these territorial disputes to international arbitration if their claims are so strong, as you suggest? And secondly, if I might ask, uh, how do you think the international community should deal with uh, situations in which there's irrefutable evidence that a country is carrying out genocide, like in Rwanda or Darfur? Thank you. Okay, so no, why uh,
0: international mediation, and why is China working with countries or, or not Taking a position against countries that have been accused of genocide or genocidal behavior. Could we do the gentleman over there, please? Yes, the one with the
2: white. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. Very nice to hear your statements because actually I was born at the height of the Cultural Revolution during that turbulent period in China. (laughs) Uh, My question is China has been expanding. You said three no's uh, earlier on and I was very impressed with those three no's but there's a bit of a contradiction because I wanted to find out what's China's policy in relation to emerging markets, especially Africa and South America because I noticed that a lot of Chinese these corporations, mining corporations, extraction uh, corporations are heavily expanding in that part of the world. And I just want to know what's the the game plan here? Apart from acquiring resources. Thanks. Ambassador Yes.
1: Uh, My answer to the first question, international arbitration, I believe that uh, through bilateral talks, we can find a solution, and international arbitration sometimes doesn't produce the best results. That's why we prefer uh, prefer bilateral talks. This is not only China's uh, position. Mm. I think this is also ASEAN's uh, position. So we are talking to to the I mean the countries mm. with whom we have differences. I think that through the bilateral talks we can solve this uh, this problem. Uh, second question about uh, Africa. About uh, you can repeat the question.
0: Yes. It, well, we had two questions. We had a second part of the first gentleman's question, which was about China's. Uh, cooperation or this willingness to invest in regimes that are accused of atrocities against their own people. Mm-hmm. And then we had a question up here about whether there is an overall strategy behind China's involvement, particularly in commercial terms in Africa, mm-hmm. if you understood. And Latin, Latin America. And Latin America. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, we, I believe, in the world today, we have to develop international cooperation. China is a resource-poor country, but for the development purpose, we need to enlarge international cooperation. So in Africa, in Latin America, there are plenty of the resources. So we like to develop cooperation with them, I think on the basis of the mutual respect and the mutual benefits. We, don't, we, do not see, see, we do not seek uni, unilateral uh, benefits. Mm. We believe that will not last. This is, I think, uh, the, uh, we can make the best deal with everybody. Mm. And as, the, as always, it has been a
0: wonderful opportunity here to listen to you tonight. Uh, you are one of the most thoughtful, uh, one of the most knowledgeable people who are involved in creating Today's China's Chinese foreign policy that I, I know of. You are an insider, but then you are also an outside observer at the same time. We are extremely grateful that you set off time in your very busy schedule to come to LSE and let us benefit from your thoughts on the future of China. Thank you very
3: much indeed.